welcome to another episode of On The Line, a podcast about careers in the life sciences. We're giving you a behind the scenes perspective on technologies that haven't even emerged and insider knowledge into the decisions made at the very top level. I'm Christina Kay, and this week I'm actually not on this episode, but my co-anchor Joe Mullings is, and he's talking to Joe Urban, the CEO of Potrero Medical, an industry leader in the predictive health fields out in San Francisco. Good morning. This is Joe Mullings, and this is another episode of On the Line. And I am here on site at Potrero Medical in the Bay Area with a friend and an amazing leader, Joe Urban. So, Joe, thanks for joining with us. It's great to have you guys here. Joe heads up an organization, um, leads a team here at Potrero Medical that's in the predictive health space. And uh, we'll dig into that in a minute. But, Joe, would you introduce yourself yeah. to the audience? So uh, Joe Urban, CEO of Petro Medical, was on the board of directors prior, and then in August came on as a full-time CEO here at Petro, leading the predictive health efforts. And you've got like Murderer's Row career and digital health. Would you share a little bit with uh, us about your background? Yeah, sure. So undergrad, Colorado State University. I was not a business major, political science but at Colorado State, I was a student body president and involved with ROTC, and that fit the profile of what Gallo looks for as far as a student leader. And so I was uh, on, on my way to law school and had a little bit of a detour with the Ernest and Julio Gallo Winery. And the more I got into that interview process, I realized that being a lawyer wasn't for me and being in business was. And so I went to work for the Gallo Winery in sales and marketing and some of the best sales training in, in the world. And that was fortunate. Gallo happens to be the profile for Boston Scientific. And so I was hired over at Boston, spent some time in the urology division at Boston Scientific after Boston went to a company called Spectronetics, which is now part of Philips and was uh, a part of that growth where I think it went from 25 million to 125 million in the span of uh, a couple of years. So it was really fast growth and then some time at some startups. I just finished my Georgia Tech MBA, spent a year at Endogastric Solutions and launching incisionless surgery, and then Transenterics before the pivot to robotics. And then from Transenterics, went to CR Bard and worked with one of my former uh, mentors at Boston, Darren Hammers, and we had uh, just a, a blast building that organization, creating leadership development programs and expanding our business globally. From Bard, I went to Oris, and that was a, a very cool experience going from some startups and some big Fortune 500 companies to a stealth company where you couldn't talk about anything that you're doing. Right. right. And then but you can the, talk about that today, right? What do they do? Somewhat. They, they, <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Somewhat. Monarch's out. So. That's right. I could speak about Monarch from uh, what's on, on the market, but it's still... Surgical robotics. Stuff, is, stuff to come. That's right. And it was a fantastic experience. They're some of the greatest people on the planet. And so, and now I'm heading up Petrero and we're having a blast. Yeah. So over at Oris, you worked for Fred Mole, right? I did. Uh, Fred was part of the team that recruited me over from Bard. Tell that story real quick. Yeah. So I was at uh, CR Bard and uh, one of my 
former colleagues, David Schumers, who we worked at Endogastric Solutions together, uh, David reached out and said, we need somebody uh, that can help us here uh, in your, with your background. And so I flew out and I saw it and I said, that's great. I'm having a blast up board, uh, not interested. And we had just purchased a house and we we're in the process of closing. And he said, why don't you guys come out and spend the weekend in San Francisco? And he brought me and my wife out. And when my wife, Patty, saw the technology, she said, I guess we're moving to California. <laughs> and so 29 days after uh, we had closed on our house, we had boxes still in the house. We had a for sale sign in the yard. And the neighbors thought it was something they did. <laughs> and they kept coming up to us asking, like, what happened? And we literally, we, we joke, Patty and I joke that when we came out, we, we burned the boats, like Cortez in the mm -hmm. 1600s, mm -hmm. just burned the boats and we're not going back and we're in Silicon Valley and uh, it, it's a shock when you first land here. Yeah. You mentioned something, There's you can't unsee what you see. What did you talk to me earlier today yeah, when Fred you, talked to you about it? So when, uh, the one thing I'd say with Oris is uh, I would tell people when I was leaving board, uh, you, you can't unsee what you see. and. What I saw was something that uh, is going to change medicine. It, there's no question. And with Fred Mole's track record, uh, he's just an amazing person. Yeah. And so uh, it was something I had to be a part of. Yeah. And quick footnote, Fred, uh, why don't you give a quick background, just the companies that he has been part of starting or technology? So Fred Mole was a general surgeon uh, by training, is a general surgeon by training. Uh, when laparoscopic surgery was taking off, uh, they would have trocars uh, that were just metal spikes. And as a resident, you didn't know if it was a sharp spike or a dull spike, if they had just manually sharpened them that day or, or if it was number 30. And so some of the residents would pop them in and, you know, sometimes they would go right in, other times they were dull, and then the next case, and there were a lot of injuries. And so Fred invented the safety trocar. And the safety trocar at one point was the number one selling medical device in the world. And it enabled laparoscopic surgery to be safe and repeatable. And when it became safe and repeatable, Fred looked at the, the overall procedure and he said, technique as a variable has to be taken out because the sensei and student is not, it can't translate when the student goes into practice and you just can't translate the skills. And so he saw a huge deficiency with technique as a variable. So what he did was uh, he was exposed to robotics at Stanford Research Institute but it was robotics for cars, putting car doors on cars. And he, uh, he said, this is an opportunity to truly change the market and, and truly change surgery and improve it. And so people thought he was insane and just like any innovator. Right. And so he launched in, uh, Da Vinci. From Da Vinci, they pioneered that. He was uh, the founder of Hansen, which was a pioneer for flexible robotics, yep. uh, chairman, of the, chairman of the board for Mako Surgery. And he's still at the forefront. He's on our board, and he's been a fantastic mentor yeah. for me. Yeah, and 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 RS, uh, the emerging technologies that are really putting intuitive. And it's funny because being the dad of intuitive, um, <laughs> with this his child <laughs> with with Oris and Hanson. With Oris, yeah, I know it's right funny. with Oris and Verb. I mean, they're 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 both sitting out there in the in the in the Bay Area, just yeah. waiting. Um, within you know 30 miles of each other yeah. and it's uh it is the epicenter for surgical robotics there's no question the one thing i'd say is fred's passion is truly centered around the patient 
and helping the surgeon, because he can empathize with the surgeon, helping the surgeon treat that patient. And I've seen that. I've been in cases with Fred where we've observed, and he's watching the movements of the surgeon's hands, their eyes, their body, the interaction in the, the room, the workflow. So from that standpoint, it was such a wonderful experience to have that mentorship with Fred. So that's interesting. So putting the patient first and Fred's um, algorithms, right, yeah. from watching and viewing and assessing, is that why he got engaged with Potrero? Yeah, I, I, there's several reasons. The predictive health aspect of it, uh, Fred has natural curiosity. And so uh, when I went and resigned, I went and resigned with Fred. And I can tell you that I had a sick feeling in my stomach and it was, it was a tough day. I went into his office and I sat down and I, I told him and the very first thing he said was, what can I do to help you? And he's been there ever since. Amazing. Yeah, it's just been great. Um, but I, I, I think from Fred's standpoint, where he's interested in is the predictive ability of uh, devices that just sit in and reside and do nothing, a dumb device, and, and making them smart and giving the medical teams actionable insights and actionable clinical utility to treat patients better than they've ever treated them before, to allow a doctor or a nurse to give them uh, hours instead of minutes, to, to be proactive instead of reactive. Right now, they're doing a jigsaw puzzle blindfolded and expecting a result, and it's just impossible. Yeah. So with that, share us a little bit about Potrero. What, what does Potrero do? What market are they addressing? What do they mean to the patient? Yeah, so predictive health is what we're pioneering within the hospital. There's uh, a number of predictive health companies that are coming up, and we're seeing them in Silicon Valley from passive predictive health, like my iWatch, where I, I constantly get information on my heart and everything else, to the hospital, to the workplace, to your car. It's going to be everywhere. And for us, we're focusing on the four walls of the hospital, and more specifically, the four walls of the ICU. And within the ICU, we're focusing on the kidney and the performance of the kidney. Right now, and this is where uh, the direction I'm providing for the team is, we're focusing on the 300,000 people that die every year in the United States from acute kidney injury. And I'll put it a different way. It's not just the 3,000 people, because I don't want to call them patients, they are people. It's the 300,000 families. And when you start to internalize it and say, this disease, it's not discriminate. And so anybody that goes into the ICU is at risk for acute kidney injury. It affects 50% of all patients in the ICU. And the challenge that we have for the team is to do better and to bring technology that enables the doctors and nurses and the care team to proactively treat that patient. Right now, they are doing the best they can in the conditions they have with the limitations of technology that are available. And we have technology and capabilities to improve that. Is it an easy application in the ICU, CCU setting? Because you and I know being in med tech for so long, when we change workflow or we have to yeah. teach somebody something new, there's 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 a, an adoption issue. So what about the Potrero? So uh, think about it this way. Of the seven vital signs, six are fully automated. The one we're tackling is not, and that's the performance of the kidney, also known as urine output. And urine output is an indicator of the, the performance of the kidney and the health of the kidney. A increase or decrease in the production of urine from the kidney is an indicator of something that's happening globally with the body. 
And so it's the least invasive way to do that. Right now, the nurses, uh, if you look at the workflow that they have right now, they're asked uh, to come in every hour on the hour to check, manually check urine output. And it's a manual, tedious, and highly variable procedure. Of all their patients, not just of one. Of all their patients. And it's not just here. It's on the floor. It's everywhere. And so do you think, you know, like in the chaotic environment uh, where they're asked to do more with less and the complexity of uh, their patients, that they have the, the time and bandwidth to do that? So that's the first step is improving and helping them with that task that they're asked to do right now so they can focus more on the patient. The second component of that is to take the data that we're getting by automating this and making it incredibly accurate and providing a picture trended over time of what's happening with that patient. How is that done today, Joe? And, and, and do we just slip in on that technology or do we ask the nurses or the caregivers to do something different? Yeah. So today the standard of care is a Foley bag and a Foley catheter, hundred year old device. Right. And there's some limitations with the current technology where there's a phenomena called vapor lock where urine will get trapped in the tube, it's physics. And what happens is the clinical teams are making decisions based on what is in the Foley bag. And if those decisions are incorrect because there's trapped or what they call retained urine in the bladder, then they're pushing too much fluid or they might be pushing too little fluid. They just don't know. And so on top of that, they'll come in, they'll grab the tube, raise it up and manually break that airlock or the patient's bladder will exceed, the, the pressures will exceed the, the, uh, what's in the tube, and the, uh, the bladder will, uh, will empty with a compression of muscle. And so those are two events that can have some very bad outcomes. Uh, if the urine goes back into the bladder, it's already compromised, and that can lead to a catheter-associated UTI. Or if the bladder compresses and they pee around the foley, it can cause wound damage around the patient. It's something you don't want with an ICU critically ill patient. Mm. So tell me about your team that's developing this technology and tell me about what it feels like leading them. Well, it's, uh, it's humbling because I work with some of the greatest people uh, that I've worked with uh, in my career. And we've taken a different approach uh, from a team standpoint. We have the traditional med tech uh, functions where you have quality regulatory, you know, everything along those lines. But then we've also started to hire data scientists, software programmers, uh, some of the, the new competencies that are just starting to hit with med tech. And so we're actively recruiting people that are experts with data science because the data that we're extracting, once it's in an algorithm, it can help the clinical teams and help advance healthcare. We know that. As a leader of a med tech company in predictive analytics, what was the aha moment once you came over to this data-centric world of med tech, whereas you, you sort of had an up-ramp on it coming out of digital surgery on robotics. Right. I mean, it wasn't a cold slap in the face. But what is it about predictive healthcare that was the big aha head slap moment for you? It's the... There's a couple. Uh, I would say that the clinical teams in the ICU, for as an example, they are doing the best they can. And if we can provide them with good clinical data that gives them utility to treat that patient, and we can take real-time data and translate that into if nothing happens uh, with that patient, if nothing changes with the status quo, 
this will happen. What we're developing is an ability to predict the future status of that patient should the status quo not change. And that's, that's the aha moment that when we start looking at this and saying, we need to focus on giving the doctors and nurses hours instead of minutes. Do you look at the med tech industry different now and look for a smart device instead of, as you referred to it earlier, as a dumb device? Yeah, I think what I see is dumb devices that reside in the body and do nothing. Those days are limited. And if you are not providing doctors and nurses and techs clinical guidance or additional information, I think the question within the next five years is what else does your device do? Mm -hmm. Right now, a lot of devices will sit in the body for weeks doing nothing. And the data's always been there, just like you said, Joe. It's always there. Yeah. And the FDAs realize this. They just came out with some guidance uh, this week where uh, they see tremendous value in AI with helping uh, the clinical teams and improving healthcare and giving the doctors and nurses uh, advanced information. Yeah, right. I, I I love that. That's that's a new world in med tech that we've I think we've all been waiting for, and it's and it's fun to sit where I sit, because I get to see the advanced tech in the startups out in the, here in the Bay Area. Yeah, um, it's interesting. And I was just going to say, if you look at where the costs are in the hospital, mm -hmm. you know, with Fred, we we spoke about Fred earlier with the uh, what he was able to do as an individual with his teams to decrease mortality and morbidity in the OR over the last 30, 40 years, taking technique out as a variable, making it safe and repeatable. If you go in the ICU, the costs in the U.S. healthcare system are tied to the patients and the complexities that the doctors and nurses are working through and the limitations of technology. If you look at acute kidney injury as a, an example, $10 billion of U.S. healthcare costs. Sepsis, $25 billion of healthcare costs, the two, $35 billion in healthcare costs. If you look at sepsis as an example, 60% uh, of sepsis patients have AKI. So the kidneys are critically So there's important. a correlation there. That's right. And so the focus in the next 10 years is going to be applying data with devices, helping the doctors and nurses, just like uh, Fred with tools, help the doctors and nurses in the OR with mortality and morbidity, with data and devices and the ICU, we have an opportunity to help them treat patients better than they've ever treated them. So question for you. How old are you, Joe? 44. I'm not recruiting him, so I can ask him. Yeah. Um, so what does the 44-year-old Joe Urban, with what you know today, what's the advice he gives to the 27-year-old Joe Urban? Take risks. Be fearless. Fearless is not being afraid to try something and understand that failure is good as long as you learn from it. Uh, failure is what makes you great. You and I were talking about the 100-mile uh, the race. There was one, one race where uh, be, there was snow. It was up in Paducah, Kentucky, and I failed to meet the cutoff. That learning, as hard as it was at that moment, mm -hmm. was in the back of my mind when I went into Leadville. And I've had a number of experiences like that over the course of the last 25 years where I've failed. And I know that at that point, what's, this is a gift. So what's this gift going to give me and how do I learn from it? Yeah. And, and like all growth occurs within struggle. 100%. Right. It never occurs within ease. 
I'll tell you, Silicon Valley, uh, you, you only see the, the good things, right? And people only see the successes uh, with a Facebook, a Google. And somebody had once told me that uh, uh, a startup, a successful startup, has failed or has come very, very close to failure many times. For us, uh, we had that moment uh, December of last year. We had three weeks of cash in the bank. And we were, we were running towards the, the finish line. And all of a sudden, everything came together. But three weeks of cash. That's like an Elon Musk move. Well, think about uh, Tesla. Tesla, the initial car could only move 20 feet. SpaceX. Right? How many SpaceX. failures did he have? Actually, isn't Elon Musk associated as an intern with one of your lead people here? Yeah. This is, this is how small Silicon Valley is. Rich Keenan, our VP of R&D, his intern 20 years ago would fall asleep in meetings. He'd fall asleep in the bathroom. He would, uh, uh, he would, he was a very smart person and he would focus uh, intensely. But what they didn't know is he was working all night long on the initial PayPal, which was, I believe it's called X. It was Elon Musk. His intern was Elon Musk. But they, 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 did he fire him or did he keep him? No, they, they kept him. Okay. He, he left. Right. So he used <laughs> to pick him up. Story. They carpooled every day. He didn't have a car. He had a funny accent from South Africa. And, and uh, he was a, a really neat guy, uh, but just uh, beyond his years intelligent, even back then, from what Rich has said. Yeah. yeah. But again, knew what he wanted to do, knew where he wanted to go. And that's the fearlessness that you referred to. So was there an event or a series of events in your career that provided clarity to you as to the direction you wanted to take as a leader? Yeah, there's a, I, I've been fortunate to have several events that have been inflection points for me in my life and career. And I've also been incredibly fortunate to have some mentors that have guided me along this, this path. Uh, when I was at Boston Scientific, I walked out of a hospital one day and I had been employed there for six months, maybe, maybe a couple more. Uh, I walked out and I had a message from my U.S. Army commander to call him. And I thought as a reservist, it was about drill. And when I called him, uh, he said, we're deploying to Afghanistan. And this was six months after 9-11. And he said, we're, we're deploying. We need to be at Bragg, Fort Bragg in 45 days. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And so I thought that I was going to get fired at Boston Scientific. <laughs> I called my boss, Darren Hammers, who's the person that recruited me. And I'll tell you, that organization uh, and everything that they did for me while I was deployed was fantastic. It was a good lesson for me on how to treat people. And what they did is they took away the distraction of what I was about to face with uh, telling me not to worry about anything at home. And as an employer, I, I will always try to emulate that. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing this. And one thing, um, your service to our country. Um, thanks for that, first of all. And um, you held the rank of? I was a captain. And how did that impact how you look at things these days? Uh, so there's stress and then there's real stress. And so, uh, the conditions of Afghanistan earlier in the war, it was 2002 to 2003. 
Um, we were still uh, going cave to cave, and we were training the Afghan National Army uh, and taking them on combat missions. And we were building schools for uh, girls and kids, and it's the first time that uh, girls had been allowed to go to school. And it's, it was, it was a, a wonderful experience for me. At the time, a single guy with no kids, uh, it was like a Super Bowl. I was assigned uh, to the 3rd Special Forces uh, as a PSYOP officer, psychological operations. And I, I could tell you that uh, the conditions of combat are the most extreme that a human can go through. And you see the absolute highs and the absolute lows and everything in between. And so when people say they're stressed, <laughs> there's stress and there's real stress. Right, right. And and you, you had mentioned before we started this morning, you didn't call them people. You were responsible for souls. Souls. Every soul that I took over, I was, uh, thank God, able to bring back. And so the, the souls that we took, uh, we brought back. And uh, it's, it, was, it was fun to watch them grow as people, 18-year-old kids that came back and they were well beyond their years with their peers. Is there anything you want to um, close up with with our session this morning that I didn't cover? There's one thing, okay. and it, it points back to what we've talked about. Um, and when I told Christina and team that I was going to surprise you with a poem, they said, that's awesome. Surprise our boss. <laughs> All right. And so, Joe, this is a, a poem that I, I've been reflecting on. Uh, through our conversations over the last several months. Um, so I'm just going to read it, okay? Yeah. Listen to the mustn'ts, child. Listen to the don'ts. Listen to the shouldn'ts, the impossibles, the won'ts. Listen to the never-haves, then listen close to me. Anything can happen, child. Anything can be. Shel Silverstein. And I think that's just a, a great reflection on the conversations we've had. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 And, and, the, and the courage that you had doing this um, on behalf of Potrero and really launching this initiative for Potrero into the med tech world and actually industry in general, the approach you're taking and people will be watching over the months and months to come is I think you're writing the book. Well, and so are you. And the Mullings Group has inspired us to be better and to be fearless. There's been a ton of people, and I'm sure you've seen it, they have told us it's impossible and it can't happen and it won't happen. And they laughed and they pointed. And you know what? It goes back to that advice I'd give the 27-year-old Joe Urban. Be fearless when people say it's impossible. Embrace that. Have a chip on your shoulder and love it when you make it possible. All I can say to that is this has been Joe Mullings, Joe Urban, and Christina Kay with On The Line. Joe, thanks for coming in today. Thanks, Joe. Thanks. Bye.